1: You've heard the rumors. This is the place where people gather to revel in wrong think, And It's absolutely true. That's that's what this program is all about. And you got to understand something else, and that is, if you are not prepared to be hated by people, you're not ready to be a free person. I know it's weird. That's the time that we live in. But if you don't think humanity's under mind control, just take a look around at how they treat and react towards anyone who tries to think freely. And tries to be free. So I'm guaranteeing that it's not going to be an easy road, but I'm going to also guarantee you're in good company. No matter how few our numbers may seem, there are a lot of people who are seeking freedom. I'm glad you're one of them. And I'm here to encourage you to think as freely and independently and clearly as possible without just, you know, taking anything that I say or anything that any other media sources are telling you as as gospel fact without checking it for yourself. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible. I'd like to ask you to consider doing business with them, simply because these are the folks who help keep me on the air, doing what I'm doing. They include HSLammo.com, also uh, Garage Door Pros. You can go to Garage Door Pro Service Pro rather.com, uh, also MonticelloCollege.org and LifesavingFood.com got a nice little link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can access any of these sponsors and see what they have to offer. Well, I thought we could start out today with an understanding of how there are two kinds of people in American society. Those who rule and those who are ruled. <clears throat> you can probably guess where you and I stand. <laughs> we're, uh, although I like to believe that we're tipping the scale in favor of, well, I actually choose to rule myself And therefore, I don't really need somebody either at the state, local, or federal level telling me, no, this is what you got to do next. Got a great article here from Francis P. Sempa. The key to understanding our ruling elites and why you cannot trust them with power. Francis Sempa writes, in the United States, Congress passes laws but exempts its members from the law's reach. Presidents sign executive orders that are nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. Courts often make policy and change or obstruct laws by interpreting the Constitution to fit the policy preferences of judges. And the laws are often applied unequally depending on the person violating them. The families of our governing elites often enrich themselves and acquire wealth and privileges just on that basis alone. In fact, during the COVID-19 pandemic, governors, mayors and other members of the ruling class imposed restrictions that they arrogantly ignored. But the rest of us, of course, were held strictly accountable to obey. So Francis Semper says, Whenever I observe the ruling elites in this country and around the world acting in their own self-interest, rather than in the interests of the people they claim to represent, he says, "I I reflect, rather, on James Burnham's timeless analysis of ruling classes in his book, The Machiavellians, published back in 1943. Now, Burnham wrote the book in the midst of World War II when the world's ruling elites were fighting the most destructive war in human history. During that war, Burnham served as an analyst for the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, the wartime precursor of the Central Intelligence Agency. In the 1930s, Burnham had flirted with the Marxism of the Trotskyite variety, but in the late 1930s he discarded ideology and embraced empiricism. That's what led him to write The Managerial Revolution, a book that combines sociopolitical analysis and geopolitics. Now, Burnham observed a worldwide movement towards statist regimes, including the Roosevelt administration's New Deal. All of the regimes, no matter what the ostensible form of government, were run by elites. In fact, Burnham sensed that the rise of an international managerial class that combined economic, Governmental and social power to advance their own interests was what we were dealing with. And in the 1940s, those regimes were struggling against one another for global hegemony, a struggle that Burnham accurately predicted would result in the rise of geopolitical superstates. Now, in his book, The Machiavellians, Burnham used the sociopolitical theories and observations of Niccolo Machiavelli, Gaetano Mosca, Vilfredo Pareto, Robert Michels, and also George Sorrell actually George S. Sorrell, not to be confused with George Soros, (laughs) to describe how all ruling classes at all times in all countries exercised political power. Burnham's analysis divorced politics from ethics, sentiment, emotion, even high-sounding ideals to lay bare the true nature of politics as a struggle for power. And he praised Machiavelli, Also Mosca, Pareto, Michaels, and Sorel for having the courage to tell us the truth about political power and those elites that wield it to further their own interests. Machiavelli taught, wrote Burnham, that political elites have a limitless human appetite for power, and they rule by a combination of force and fraud. Elites in every country want to rule over others and manifest what Burnham called a will to power power. Mosca held that in all societies, there are two classes of people, a class that rules and a class that is ruled. Now, this is a universal political phenomenon, whether the form of of government is a democracy or a monarchy, even an oligarchy or a dictatorship. Mosca wrote, Dominion of an organized minority obeying a single impulse over the unorganized majority is inevitable. And in each ruling class, according to Sorel. There's a political formula, often an iron law of oligarchy, which holds that all governments are oligarchic in nature, rule of the few, primarily for the benefit of the rulers. Finally, Pareto, too, believed in universal elite rule, but observed that elites circulate in and out of power. From his study of these political scientists and his observation of ruling elites in his own time, Burnham derived what he called principles of Machiavellianism that are common to all governments. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Number one, politics is the struggle for social power. Number two, political elites disguise their real goals behind pleasant-sounding and high-minded rhetoric. Number three, all societies are divided between a ruling elite and the population they rule. Number four, every ruling class has as its primary goal the preservation and expansion of its own power and privileges. Number five, elites rule by force and fraud and use political formulas or myths to justify their rule. Number six, periodically the structure and composition of the elite class change. I think we can pretty well see that as we look around us. Now back to Sempa's article, Francis Sempa says, we see evidence of Burnham's elite rule in this country and elsewhere around the world, whether it's the international elites of the World Economic Forum who seek to impose international norms on the world, Or the elites of the European Union, who seek to erase the sovereignty of its member countries. Or the totalitarian oligarchs of the Chinese Communist Party, or the autocrats of Vladimir Putin's regime, or the religious despots of Iran, or the administrative state in Washington, D.C., what Donald Trump called the swamp. Our modern ruling elites act in ways that would be familiar to Machiavelli, Mosca, Sorel, Michels, and Pareto. So Burnham concluded the Machiavellians with a literary flourish about how liberty and freedom may survive the actions and desires of a ruling class. Here's what he said, quote, The primary object of all rulers is to serve their own interest, to maintain their own power and privilege. There are no exceptions, no theory, no promises, no morality, no amount of goodwill, no religion will restrain power neither priests nor soldiers neither labor leaders nor businessmen neither bureaucrats nor feudal lords will differ from each other in the basic use which they will seek to make of power only power restrains power there is no one force no group and no class that is the preserver of liberty liberty is preserved by those who are against the existing chief power End quote. "ooh that last line wow Now, the point here is that the more Americans who understand this about our ruling class, the better chance we have to preserve our liberties that are increasingly under attack by our elites. Again, this is an article by Francis P. Sempa from AmericanThinker.com. That last line, though, think about this. Liberty is preserved by those who are against the existing chief power. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you have pitchforks and torches and you're rising up violently. What it means is you and I have to make a choice as to whether or not we will give our consent, whether we will give our allegiance to those in power. I mean, that's this is the place, I think, where we really overlook just how much influence we have. And and granted, you and I withdrawing our consent, okay, maybe that's not going to tip the scales in a big way. Wow, look, the these three or four people stopped <laughs> obeying. I guess we'll just have to change the way we're doing things and stop trying to rule everybody's lives. It's more a matter of when enough people choose to govern themselves. You can very non-violently just withdraw your support of those uh, people in power. And suddenly they find themselves looking around wondering, hey, how and when did my balloon deflate? It's not like you walked up and popped it for them. You just
0: quietly let the air out because you were ruling yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Want to give a little love to lifesavingfood.com. This is emergency food storage. They actually sell discounted emergency food, survival food kits, emergency preparedness supplies. Essentially, all the things you would need... To have the ability to stand on your own if something difficult or something challenging were to arise and basically you couldn't depend on all the things that we normally depend on on a day-to-day basis. I know it sounds pretty straightforward, right? Well, click on the link I provided in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com That's lifesavingfood.com. All I invite you to do is take a look at their website. See if you don't get a few great ideas for ways that you could have a little more peace of mind, a little more assurance that yes... I could be self-reliant, and this would be helpful in achieving that goal. All right, let's let's get back to the idea of there's a lot of stuff that's stacking up right now that is uh, how can I put this? Concerning, to put it mildly. And as economically, there there's a lot of uh, uh, bad news that seems to be accumulating the supply chain breakdowns, the cost of energy. I mean, I'm looking, I'm watching Europe right now. I think a lot of people are watching right now. July 22nd is going to be a pretty interesting day for Europe because uh, Russia has shut down or is shutting down a gas pipeline through which they feed much of the gas they sell to Europe. And the question is, are they going to, I mean, they shut it down for maintenance, but the question is, are they going to reopen it? And if the answer is no, it's going to be a tough time. And those economic shockwaves will, of course, reverberate around the world. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to say there's a lot of pieces in motion and there's a lot of stuff that could go wrong in addition to what has already gone wrong. So it really makes you wonder, wow, what are we up against? And truth be told, I think we all feel the stress from this. I, I definitely feel anxiety as I look around and kind of contemplate What's going on and how can I best prepare for it? Well, I've got a great article here from Kent McManigal, who, again, I just, I love Kent for his ability to just say it as straight and succinctly as possible. Here's what he says. He says, preparation can ease your anxiety. He says, if you're worried about the next few years, I can relate. Supply chain problems, inflation, the ongoing drought, the possibility of political violence all seem like they're closing in on us. And he says, an effective way to defeat the worry is to take charge of your own life. Be responsible for your own well-being. Don't wait to be rescued. And that's key right there. If you can get your mind around the idea, well, you know, somebody's coming to rescue me. No, they're not. (laughs) Nobody is coming to save you. And that's good news and it's bad news. The bad news is, well, nobody's coming to save you. The good news is you can do things yourself. You've just kind of been trained to believe that, well, I have to wait for permission or I need somebody who's an expert in this. No, you don't. Here's what Kent McManigal says. He says, you'll always feel worse about things you think you can't control. So take control and do what you can, and you'll put your energy to better use than you would by worrying. And these are some of the ways he suggests doing that. He says, stock up on things you'll need later, now, before the prices get higher. Now, if they aren't available in stores at the moment, stay alert and buy them when you see them. Give local sellers a chance first, but if it doesn't look as though they'll be able to get what you need, well, try an online source. Canned food is a great place to start. Dry rice and beans, as long as you have the water to prepare them, are items every house should store against hard times. He says, please stock up on water, both to cook and drink, both to cook with and drink, and for cleansing or cleaning rather and sanitation. And I love how he puts this. You can never have enough. (laughs) It's true. You really can't. Don't forget about medical supplies, including medicines. Health endangering prescription rules make it hard to stock up on essential medications. But he says this is something to take into consideration before it becomes an emergency. Now, if things improve on their own, having extra food, water and health supplies isn't going to hurt you any. And if things get worse, they'll be worth more than gold. Now, he also points out political violence looks like it may soon become a bigger threat. Americans have irreconcilable differences, and it shows. So Kent McManigal says, I would recommend stay away from big cities and avoid the worst threat of political violence. Now, sometimes you can't avoid them, but the idea is get in, get done, and get out. The less time spent there, the better. He says, I, know, I have neighbors I know I can depend on, and I would do what I can to support them, too. Now, I have neighbors I don't know well enough, though, and he says, that's my fault. That's something I need to correct. But the point he's making here is you need to build community where you live. Community, as opposed to its opposite, government, is essential for survival. So doing useful things will help you feel better about the future. You'll feel more capable. You'll feel more competent. And it's more than a feeling. You'll be making it real. I think that's about as succinctly as it can be put. But you have to make yourself move. Maybe you have to say the words out loud, move, and make yourself start taking that action. I want to echo, and in fact, I want to expand a little bit on what Kent McManagle talks about, building community where you live. One of the smartest things that we ever did was to create what we called a camping club. Now, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the Biden administration, the Department of Justice would probably look at this as some terribly subversive organization. But years ago, based on some friends that we left, that we met rather, at a uh, uh, seminar on how to create your own cold weather clothing. Some of you may remember this. Jim Phillips came to St. George, Utah and was teaching people how to make your own Arctic clothing. And we met a number of people there, as well as some folks we'd been friends with for a few years. And the idea was hatched hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to come together and make a camping club. And so, even though a lot of us had little kids at the time, we came together and we planned out camping trips. Now, this gave us an opportunity to look at things that would work, to put things to the test, out there fighting the bugs, fighting the weather, and, and learning to deal with problems as they arose. And so, we had... Uh, you know, four season tents. We ended up buying cylinder stoves. We, we had, uh, I'll tell you what was really funny was we all had very similar uh, pickup trucks. I think we all had somewhere between 95 to 97 Ford F-350 pickups. At least three of the people in the group had white F-350s. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. When we went camping, we were this nice, tight little column of almost identical vehicles, and we'd set up a, a very uh, official-looking camp, But the idea was we went out there to enjoy time, to make memories with our kids, to sit around the campfire and talk. And here's the important part, to teach each other useful skills. That was one of the assignments. Every time we went and did a camping trip, everybody was assigned something that that they were supposed to bring and teach the group. So uh, one friend was really experienced at uh, climbing and ropes. So we learned how to tie basic knots. Fascinating stuff. Another was a member of the National Guard and taught us how to read a map, how to use a lensatic compass, how to basically do orienteering instead of having to rely on a GPS. Fascinating stuff. We learned how to camp in the summer heat. We learned how to camp in the winter cold. And I'm talking single digit overnight weather. Yes, with little kids. And you know what? It was a great experience. We got to test all of the equipment that we had. We got to test our skills. We learned first aid skills and so forth. It was uh, really a remarkable experience, but here's the best part of it. We learned who we would be willing to trust with our lives by building that community and getting out there and suffering together and learning together. Now, maybe you don't know anybody off the top of your head who fits that description, but I'm going to suggest... Take a look around you and think about the kind of people in your life. And if they're not in your neighborhood, that's okay. You know, maybe they live in a nearby city. Maybe they even live far away. But if you have a group of people in your life that you can turn to and train with and practice your self-reliance with, I can promise you that if really hard times were to come or some kind of a difficult survival situation, you'd find you had the teamwork and the friendship and, of course, the cooperation to make a go of it. And that brings peace of
0: mind, no doubt about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. Welcome back to the show,
1: would like to give a shout out here to our sponsors including Garage Door Pros. You can go to garagedoorproservices.com to learn more about them. In particular, here's what I want you to know. Garage Door Pros is a local company servicing Southern Utah. Now this means St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. They are there to help you with installation, service and repair on garage doors for both residential and commercial purposes. And the best benefit here is their doors are actually made in America. This means they can give you a quick response. They have a much faster lead time than other companies. And if you've been thinking about maybe uh, taking a little bit better care of your home and cutting down on your your uh, cooling bills, especially during the hot summer, check out the insulated garage doors that they offer. GaragedoorProservices.com. You can also call 435-525-2773. Okay, I'm going to delve into a topic that's going to be kind of a sensitive one for some folks. But I found such a great commentary on this. And that is, if you've ever wondered, okay, you've heard the term mass psychosis. And I think we probably saw a good example of mass psychosis with a lot of the COVID stuff that took place. You know, when you see people wearing a face mask while swimming, okay, something isn't quite right. Somebody is, I mean, they're basically waterboarding themselves. Why would people do that? It's because they have this fear and this mass psychosis has taken over. If I don't do this, I'm putting myself or others at risk of of COVID. But if you're still not convinced that that is what constitutes a mass psychosis, here's an even better example. And that would be the left's barbaric obsession with transgenderism. Now, before I go one step further, I just want to emphasize this is not about, hey, let's go pick on the transgender people. Um, I know people who are transgender, I mean, as in, I know them personally, and I'm going to tell you right now, these are children of God. These are not people who need to be harassed or otherwise made to feel guilty or treated like they're a walking sin or something like that. But if you want to look at the people who are pushing transgenderism, I'm very much of the opinion that the ones who are pushing it, are not doing so with the best interest of these individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria or who are trying to sort out gender identity issues. To me it seems like it's it's a type of lunacy that's being pushed on us and it's it's really ugly. Patricia McCarthy writing for americanthinker.com says how to explain the democratic party's obsession with transgenderism with shoving it down the throats of every american from ages 5 and up. Well, she says it's inexplicable. Does every registered Democrat support confusing small children with gender identity indoctrination? That can't be true. But school districts across the country are using books about all manner of sexual issues, and this includes pornography, topics way beyond the grasp of small children. And they're using those books without parents' knowledge. So when parents discover these books and object, they're threatened grooming a word once applied to other cultures or the worst sadists grooming young children for sex with adults now applies to public schools in America with the full support of American Democrats in Congress. Now she says no sentient person can legitimately in good conscience believe that the sex of an infant should be excluded from birth certificates or that it's fair for male athletes to compete against girls because they identify as a female. This is putting an end to women in sports. She says the Biden administration is particularly preoccupied with the plight, in, quote, in quotation marks, of trans people as if they were a significant portion of the population. Make that a significant proportion of the population, but they're not. According to the CDC, we're talking about 0.6%. And for that 0.6%, people are canceled, fired from their jobs, banned from Twitter, and so forth, if they use a wrong pronoun or make a comment deemed transphobic. It's all surreal. Now, trans people are not denied any rights guaranteed to all citizens, so the suggestion that they are is ludicrous. They want to be treated as a special class of persons deserving of special privileges. What are those special privileges? Well, their activists demand that the rest of the population submit to their requirements. Education must be reformed according to their particular dysphoria, and that the left has chosen to die on this hill is insane it has become a form of mass psychosis the biden administration and the democratic party have made it their number one issue and the ever and always weak republicans are going along to get along god forbid they be called transphobic most americans in in congress are deathly afraid of being branded with any of the words the left uses to sabotage good people words like racist white supremacist homophobic transphobic Newly installed Supreme Court justice Ketanji Brown, Ketanji Brown rather Brown Jackson would not and could not define the word woman when asked. And she said she couldn't because she's not a biologist. And after that absurd answer, she was still confirmed. Maybe you saw Josh Hawley's recent recent exchange with a Berkeley law professor Kiara Bridges. That exchange says it all. The hearing was about abortion, clearly a woman's issue. Holly asked this woman what she meant by her phrase, people with the capacity for pregnancy. And, oh, she got indignant. She replied that his question was transphobic and would incite violence against trans persons. And she insisted that not all women have the capacity for pregnancy and that some trans men and non-binary people do. Now, to note that the professor was and is shockingly arrogant and disrespectful goes without saying But what's so frightening is that she has been so thoroughly indoctrinated, so deluded by this ultimately tragic issue, that it's clear she actually believes the nonsense that she's spewing. People like this woman, well, can we call her a woman, could not care less about what they are doing to the young people who are gender confused, thanks in large part to the left and the media. Put them on life-threatening drugs that will render them sterile and support the mutilating surgeries that will sentence them to a lifetime of miserable medical problems, all of which will, in the end, destroy their lives. Now, congressional Democrats are all for it. Biden is so proud of the trans people he has hired when it's abundantly clear that each of them has been appointed only to fulfill his woke requirement. No amount of drugs or surgeries will make them the other sex other than the one they were at birth. And they they still are. She says, Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman, should be required viewing for every member of Congress. But like the media, they'll trash it without watching it. Walsh's film explores the sheer lunacy of the adults who push the drugs and medical interventions on very young, gender-confused children. These self-appointed experts lie incessantly about the debilitating, life-altering effects of puberty blockers, the same drugs used in chemical castration on imprisoned pedophiles. One voice of sanity in the film is Dr. Miriam Grossman, who's been fighting to expose the dangers and falsehoods of the gender transition industry for decades. She also recommends the website PIT P-I-T-T, Parents with Inconvenient Truths about Trans. Now, Democratic members of Congress would be wise to read a bit of the heartbreaking stories recounted on those pages. Rachel Levine, Biden's assistant secretary of health, is lying through his teeth when he says gender affirmation drugs and surgeries are a blessing to trans kids. At least he waited until adulthood to attempt to become a woman. But he has no business trying to sell the whole package to prepubescent children. Bookworm asks, why when a young child confesses gender confusion is that child not given the hormones of his original sex rather than the hormones of the sex he claims he wants to be? Good question. Why are such kids automatically shoved into a hormonal nightmare that will change everything about their young bodies forever? And again, why is the American left so determined to make transgenderism the most pressing issue of our time? One thing we should all know by now is that the left despises children. Despite Nancy Pelosi's oft-repeated mantra for everything, it's for the children. The left has long made clear its antipathy for children. How else to explain their mania? That abortion be legal and be encouraged up to and even after the moment of birth. Safe, legal, and rare once the slogan for limited abortion has been cast aside in favor of infanticide. The nuclear family must be destroyed in order to gain control over the children. And as for educating the children, no more of that. Indoctrination all the way. American history, reverence for our Constitution, no way. They must learn only that America is a racist nation marred forever by slavery, even though nearly 700,000 Americans gave their lives to end it as of 1865. So the use and abuse of children to normalize and medicalize gender dysphoria is not surprising, but it is surely depraved. Now, there are ways and methods to help such kids without ruining their bodies, without condemning them to a lifetime of health crises, But what the left is advocating, cramming into the minds of small children, often to the exclusion of parents, is truly barbaric. So says Patricia McCarthy, and I agree with her on this one. And the vehemence with which it's being pushed on the American public, you cannot even so much as question it. And in fact, if you so much as say, Well, I'm not buying into this, you'll be accused of denying someone's right to exist. In other words, it's all about give me your attention. And if I can't have your attention, then I'll settle for your kids' attention. But somebody's going to validate me, or else. This is why I encourage my listeners, and I do my best on my part, to stay tethered to reality. In spite of what is being thrown at us pretty much 24-7.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A
1: quick shout-out here for HSLammo.com. I do appreciate Spencer Worthington and all of his efforts to make good, high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. This is the stuff you want to stock up on if you're interested in, uh, well, getting out there and having fun at the range. You know, that's still a thing. At least uh, at least in free America, that's, uh, that's something that's not looked down on. There's also the, the opportunity to turn your money into skill at arms. It takes ammo to do that. And HSL Ammunition is there to help you in that regard. It's also a great store of value for those who are thinking about socking away items that are barterable or that will hold value, even as the dollar depreciates. Again, ammo is a very safe bet in that it will always be desirable. People will be willing to pay for it or trade for it. You might as well put it up there with the other precious metals. Silver, gold, copper, lead, brass. Yep, I think that's a winning combination. So a couple of stories here to end this segment of the show. Um, I want to share one with you from Judge Andrew Napolitano, Tyranny of the Majority. This is a wonderful history lesson, which starts with a quote from the Reverend Mather Bly's back in the American Revolution, which is better, to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or 3,000 tyrants one mile away. And, you know, the, the point that Judge Napolitano is making here is, you know, Blythe was a loyalist. He was about, uh, he was one of the one-third of the American adult males who uh, opposed the American Revolution and favored continued governance by Great Britain. Now, he warned to be against the dangers of too much democracy, which I think we're probably at a point right now where we are experiencing exactly what he warned against, out-of-control democracy. And and Judge Napolitano says, I say democracy because there remain in our federal structure a few safeguards against runaway federal tyranny, such as equal state representation in the Senate, the Electoral College, the state control of federal elections, and life-tenured federal judges and justices. Now, of course, the Senate, as originally crafted did not consist of popularly elected senators. And he reminds us they were appointed by state legislators, legislatures rather, to represent the sovereign states as states, not the people in them. Part of James Madison's genius was the construction of the federal government as a three-sided table. The first side stood for the people. That was the House of Representatives. The second side rather, stood for the sovereign states that created the federal government, and that was the Senate. And the third side was for the na- stood for the nation-state, the presidency. The judiciary, whose prominent role today was unthinkable in 1789, actually wasn't even part of the mix. Now, in his famous bank speech, Madison argued eloquently against legislation chartering a national bank because the authority to create a bank was not present in the Constitution, but it was retained by the states and reserved to them by the Tenth Amendment. So in that speech, he warned that the creeping expansion of the federal government would trample the powers of the states and also the unenumerated rights of the people that the Ninth Amendment, his pride and joy because it protected natural rights, prohibited the government from either denying or disparaging. Now, keep in mind, Madison gave that speech in February of 1791. That was 11 months before the addition of the Bill of Rights. Given the popular fears of a new central government, Madison assumed the Bill of Rights would quickly be ratified, and he was right. And, you know, his bank speech remains just as relevant today. And the point here that Napolitano is making is the more state sovereignty the feds absorb, the more state governance that has become federalized, the fewer differences there are among the regulatory and taxing structures of the states. I mean, part of the genius of federalism was if you didn't like the -the over-the-top regulations in Massachusetts, you could move to New Hampshire. Or if you're fed up with the high state taxes in New Jersey, you could go to Pennsylvania. But the states are becoming more and more uniform because they are more and more federalized. And this has happened because Congress has become a general legislature without regard for the constitutional limits imposed upon it. So Judge Napolitano says, in a democracy faithless to con- constitutional guarantees, the majority will take whatever it wants from the minority, including its liberty and property. Now, there's much more to this article. I hope you'll click on the link that I provide in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com and check it out for yourself. Okay, let's end on a positive note, though. If you are serious about protecting and perpetuating freedom for future generations, you already know there's a lot of work to be done. Annie Holmquist says there is no place like home to help freedom grow. She says, well, having dinner with a Chinese couple several years ago, I listened as they described visiting their parents or their visiting parents' response, rather, to the American landscape. Having recently arrived from China, the parents' amazement about the Dakotas was particularly amusing. So much space was the loose translation. They could build so many apartments. Now, she says, I laughed heartily at the time, realizing just how different American interests were from those of the Chinese. Americans certainly didn't need myriads of high rises stretching across the Dakota plains. But she says, in retrospect, I now wonder if there was more underlying that comment than simply the Chinese need for space. Could such a thought also stem from the communist ideology that pervades China, an ideology that squelches freedom and seeks control over every aspect of life? Homeownership, the ideal of a little house with a white picket fence, is the American dream. That house is a place of rest, a place to gather, a place to live, work, and play in. At its heart, the little house and picket fence dream is, is freedom itself. Control over a small piece of property an American can call his own. Now, she says the American dream still lives, but not everyone thinks that's a good thing. Judging from a recent Time magazine headline that declared, America needs to end its love affair with single-family homes. Housing developers, the article explains, are continually trying to buy land and develop communities of multi-family dwellings. In essence, the high-rises our friends from China were so eager to build. But these same developers seem to be mildly exasperated because, despite their best efforts to patiently explain the benefits of housing density... Many individuals continue to inquire and dream about single-family homes. One woman told Time, "I would love to own a single-family home and have pets and children running around. I'd rather not be in an apartment building. It just doesn't feel as homey." Unfortunately, affordable single-family home ownership is increasingly difficult to achieve. Annie Hongquist points out corporations such as BlackRock are gobbling up single-family homes and turning them into rentals. Writer Pedro Gonzalez explains in the American Earth, make that the August 2021 issue of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. In the article, he also draws attention to the fact that multifamily housing is being pushed by those who fear climate change and view America through a racist lens. For, of course, single family dwellings encourage both a larger carbon footprint and the concept of the nuclear family, the latter of which was once a direct target of Black Lives Matter. Now, the increasing difficulty of owning a home is likely not accidental. For as philosopher James Burnham wrote in his 1941 book, The Managerial Revolution, ownership means control. If there is no control, then there is no ownership. Thus, if our ruling elites can prevent average people from owning their own homes, doing so will strip those same people of more freedom and control over their own lives. Burnham himself uses this issue of home ownership to illustrate how property rights translate into freedom. If I own a house, let us say, that means that, at least under normal circumstances, I can prevent others from entering it. In developed societies with political institutions, it also means that the state, the police in this instance, backed by the courts, will, if necessary, enforce this control of mine over access to the house. If I cannot, when I wish to, prevent others from entering the house, if anyone else or everyone else has the same rights of entry as I, then neither I nor anyone would say that I am the owner of the house. Now, Burnham also notes that the control that comes with ownership offers many benefits to the owner, including warmth, shelter, and privacy. Take that control away and give it to someone else, such as a corporation or the government, and the individual can kiss both freedom and those benefits goodbye. But if we want those benefits, she says, then we need to hold on to the American dream ever more tightly, not only for ourselves, but for others, too. Annie Holmquist says, do you want to be free from the grasp and control of government? Then put your earnings toward a house and other amenities that will make that home more comfortable for yourself and those you love, instead of spending your earnings on experiences or other frivolous items. Do you want your children to know and value freedom? Then encourage them toward home ownership and set aside a small nest egg to help them toward that purpose one day. Teach them how to do the things that will aid in maintaining that house. Learning to paint, repair, and beautify a home while young will lay the groundwork for greater pride and ownership in and desire for their own future property. Do you want to encourage others to experience the freedom of having a place to call their own? Encourage them to buy a house and then pay it off quickly. Give them a helping hand with their house projects where you're able. Make your own home a bright spot to which you can invite them so they get a taste of freedom and the benefits that home ownership brings. She says those who seek to control our bodies and minds would like nothing better than to stick each of us into a soul-crushing, rented high-rise in order to quash our freedom. Don't let them do it. There's no place like home, especially when it's in the land of the free. I don't know why, but that one hit all the right nerves for me. Again, that's from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Yes, there's a link in the show notes. You can check those out at the Show.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.